This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, February 12th, 2018, Episode 50, Concerning Fire and Fury in the Palace, Part 1. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Well, we're kicking off our 2018 with episode number 50. To celebrate this milestone, we're going to get into one of my absolutely favorite medieval books and a great example of the wit that I do try to showcase on this show alongside uh, the general historical weirdness. We're opening up Walter Mapp's De Nugis Curialium, or Courtier's Trifles. Strictly speaking, We hit our 50th episode last time at Christmas, since the numbering of this podcast doesn't count our prologue episode, episode zero, uh, which if you're a newer listener and haven't gone back and pulled that one out of the archives, you might consider doing so. I like to think it actually has some interesting things to say. But for this pseudo-semi-centennial episode, we're going to hear the first part of Walter Mapp's satirical description of the royal court which in our sole surviving manuscript of his book is given the heading A Simulacio Curii Regis Ad Infernum, or A Comparison of the Court to the Infernal Regions. I can't quite put my finger on why, but somehow this description of a dysfunctional and chaotic swirl of sycophants around a temperamental and vindictive executive seems weirdly resonant today. Eh, it's probably just reminding me of Game of Thrones. And actually, a second well actually, um, we're not quite going to get as far as the comparison of the court of King Henry II to hell today. Uh, That will come in part two next episode. Today, we're getting the setup for that comparison, along with a substantial digression on the decline of humanity. And that's kind of the essence of Walter Mapp, this setting out of a topic and then almost immediately straying off onto other paths. The editor of the most recent critical edition of the De Nugis Curialium, or just the De Nugis for short, and I keep wanting to say De Nugent, but that would be a very different and much less appealing book, I think. Um, anyway, the editor, C.N.L. Brook, calls the De Nugis, quote, the untidy legacy of an untidy mind, an assessment offered, I believe, with affection. This is a rambling book. It's loosely affiliated with the popular medieval genre of the Mirror for Princes, a kind of manual of moral and political instruction for ruling nobility. In this case, the De Nugis is sometimes more like a parody of a Mirror for Princes, although at other times it seems to be perfectly earnest in offering little tales and exempla for the reader's edification. This class of texts, since they're meant to be collections of useful information, can read a lot like a medieval version of Uncle John's Bathroom Reader, even more so than in our Chronicles, which can also sometimes seem to be just compiling anecdotes in that same sort of mode. The title of the book makes this purpose very clear. Nugai are trifles, or according to the Lewis and Short Dictionary, quote, jokes, jests, idle speeches, trifles, trumpery, nonsense. Curialium is plural, so it's not a courtier's trifles, but the trifles or blatherings of courtiers, or perhaps pertaining to courtiers. And the book opens with a rather unflattering, though also somewhat sympathetic, portrait of who those courtiers are. Or at least sympathetic to the circumstances they find themselves in. Uh, It certainly portrays some courtiers as terrible people. 
But it is a sympathy rooted in experience, because Walter Mapp was one of these courtiers. We actually know a decent amount about Mapp's career, uh, but not so much about his biography. He's quite a bit more than just a name, as some of our authors are, but he's still rather less than a fully realized person, as far as the historical record. He was born sometime around 1130, and grew up during the anarchy of Stephen's reign. He was a Welshman from the Marches, though he lived on the English side of the border and spent most of his life moving in English circles. His name, Map, is likely a form of the Welsh Vab or Mab or Ap, meaning son of, and was probably a common nickname the English might give to Welsh friends. Uh, it would be like calling someone of Irish or Scottish descent Mac as a nickname. And indeed, you can probably hear there the underlying common Celtic root, Mab, Map, Mac. His family seems to have been of some notable social standing and gave assistance to Henry II both before and after his taking the throne, all of which secured for Walter a series of comfortable royal appointments. He was a clerk who had studied at Paris, but his clerical duties, even when holding ecclesiastical offices, were much more in the vein of what we'd call civil service than religious, and were certainly far distant from pastoral work of any kind. In this sense, he wasn't all that different from his contemporary at court, Thomas Beckett, uh, albeit a bit better educated than Beckett was. He was a secular clerk under a king who was expanding the civil service and bringing in lots of new blood into the royal administration and the court. Mapp rides this civil service boom and has a solid and prosperous, if unremarkable, career. He tried twice to score a bishopric for himself, but was unsuccessful both times. He served as a diplomat and king's representative on the continent, and acted as a royal justice in England in 1173. He acquired enough churches and dignities to support himself in reasonable luxury later in his life. His court career ended with the death of Henry in 1189, but he continued to kick around in his ecclesiastical offices until his own death 20 years later in 1209 or 1210. He wrote most of the De Nugis in the early 1180s while he was still a courtier himself, and added a few pieces to it in the 1190s while retired from court to Oxford. Mapp had a reputation as a wit and a storyteller. He's mentioned by other writers of the period, including Gerald of Wales, who knew him personally, and yet we have no surviving texts by Mapp other than the De Nugis, which, as I mentioned before, only survives in a single manuscript. Now, it has embedded in it two satirical tracts, one against marriage and another against the Cistercians, which did attain some popularity as individual texts, and of which there are multiple surviving copies, though very few of these have Mapp's name on them. Uh, and in fact, one of the places where the anti-marriage tract survives is in collections of the purported writings of St. Jerome. But there's no evidence that the whole of the De Nugis was ever circulated in the Middle Ages. The medieval writers who tell us about Map and his work never mention it. For a long time, it was believed that Map was the author of some chivalric romances in French prose, but more recent scholarship has fairly convincingly shown that he was not the author of the specific text attributed to him, and no other romances survive which might have plausibly been his. It's possible, given the seeming paradox of Map being evidently famous among his peers for his verbal skill, and yet there being a lack of manuscripts of his work, that his reputation came primarily from being an oral storyteller at court. 
Maybe he performed a great version of the Lancelot tale, but never put it down in a manuscript. And later writers, knowing his fame, but not knowing his works, just attributed texts to him, much like the way Ben Franklin, Mark Twain, and Oscar Wilde still rack up spurious proverbs, witticisms, and quotations on the internet today. Our single manuscript of the De Nugis is not the original. The text map had written out himself, or perhaps dictated, probably consisted of several individual bundles of pages with loose leaves inserted here and there. There's evidence of the text being reorganized by moving huge blocks of text around, as you might if you were shuffling a stack of notebooks. It probably never attained a final draft form during Map's lifetime. The manuscript we have, Bodleian 851, parentheses 3041, was copied out in the 14th century, but it appears to have been copied from a reasonably well-organized and stable exemplar, not a heap of loose choirs. So there presumably was a clean copy of the text that existed at some point between the original leaves and the Bodleian manuscript, but who made it and why and when, during Map's lifetime or up to a hundred years after his death, we just don't know. The surviving manuscript was acquired by the Bodleian Library in 1601, and there it sat, not really getting much attention at all until the scholar Thomas Wright made a transcription of it for a printed text in 1850, and that's when serious scholarly attention began to be paid to it. This rediscovery of Map led to an interest in producing a translation, which brings us to the text I'll be reading from today. There's an interesting little bit of tragic history to this translation project narrated in the introduction to its 1923 edition, and I'll let that book's editor, E. Sidney Hartland, tell it. One evening before the late war, I sat with Dr. William Crook and Professor J. L. Myers in the Royal Society's Club, discussing the possibility of inducing some scholar to undertake a translation of Walter Mapp's De Nugis Curialium, a work which existed in a single manuscript in the Bodleian Library at Oxford and had lain there for three whole centuries. It was known to contain matter of interest relating to the history and folklore of this country, and yet no one had turned it into English. The late Thomas Wright, about 70 years ago, had transcribed it for the Camden Society, and his transcription had been published in one of the volumes of the Society. But an examination showed that the transcription was far from accurate, and the first problem was to find someone with the leisure and the facility in reading a manuscript of the 14th century who would be willing to go and sit down in the Bodleian and undertake the work of correcting Thomas Wright's transcription. Mr. Elliot Crook, Dr. Crook's son, who had just passed through his course at the university and was considering the selection of medieval paleography as a profession, happened to be with us. He had been a pupil of Professor Myers, and the latter held a high opinion of him. In the course of the conversation, Professor Myers asked, why should not Elliot undertake it? The suggestion found favor with him, and without delay he set about the work. But he found that Wright's text presented so many variations from the manuscript, as he read it, that it was necessary not merely to correct the printed version, but to make a new text. After some months of patient labor, he completed this task. When it was finished, the Great War broke out. He volunteered for service. With a younger brother, he was unfortunately killed on the fields of France, and he left with his father as the only result of his labor the manuscript of his transcription, which he was never to revise or translate. 
To make this sad little story a little bit sadder, Hartland then goes on to reveal that at the same time that young Crook was making his new transcription, the great medievalist and storyteller M.R. James had independently taken on the same task. And it's James's resulting edition of the Latin text that was published in 1914 and which became the basis for this translation, also by James. In his own translator's preface, James acknowledges that Hartland had sent him Crook's transcription, but at that point his own version was practically at the printer's already, essentially revealing that Crook's work was all for naught. One might ask, why then even mention it twice now in the introductory materials to this edition? And it has to be because it's a memorial to a lost friend, student, and colleague. It's not about giving the required credit to an academic contributor, It's a human gesture of grief. For Hartland, anyway. James's statements don't quite convey grief. Uh, It feels more like James is in the awkward position of having to explain why he didn't actually make any use of the dead student's work that had been sent to him a bit too late. But to get back into a lighter mood, let's move on to the opening of Map's book and The Gateway to Hell. He's writing to entertain his peers, other men of the court, He's not sucking up to a noble or royal patron. He does address a certain Jeffrey in the book, uh, but this person may well be a fictional construct and not a real dedicatee. It's a rather gossipy book, with a lot of contemporary references and rather snarky critiques of groups and institutions. As I alluded to before, the Cistercian Order receives the most extended and formal hatchet job, but the critique of the chaos and injustice of the court that the book kicks off with is much in the same vein. I'll talk more about the court of Henry II next episode as we continue on with the courtly satire, but it is interesting to consider to what degree Mapp's criticisms here are specific to the dynamics of the Angevin court, and how much they represent just the perennial complaints of political life. I read it, and I can't help but feel a lot of striking resonances with current American politics, but I also suspect that you could find Washington insiders of almost any era of the last 60 years who would say it describes their experience in politics too, and probably politicians throughout the centuries. So maybe Mapp's courtly inferno is much like Dante's of a hundred years later, which is both full of specific allusions to 14th century Florentine politics, but also speaks to universal themes. As I said before, the version of our text today is the translation made by M.R. James from 1923. That's the text I'll be using with just a couple of emendations. James's translation, with further modifications, is the basis for the critical edition of the De Nugis edited by Broken Miners from 1983, which is a quite lovely book. To launch us off, I'll give you this one suggestive quote from C.N.L. Brook from the critical edition. He says, quote, the De Nugis Curialium was the commonplace book of a great after-dinner speaker, and if one is entirely sober when one reads it, it is easily misunderstood. Personally, if I were to nominate a medieval death trip episode that would be most improved by drinking, it would probably be that Aquinas cannibalism one from a little while back. Um, but you've heard the sage advice of a published map scholar, so do as you will. Okay, here is the opening of the first distinction of De Nugis Curialium, A Courtier's Trifles, by Walter Mapp.
In time I exist and of time I speak, says Augustine, and adds, What time is, I know not. In a like spirit of perplexity, I may say that in the court I exist and of the court I speak, and what the court is, God knows, I know not. I do know, however, that the court is not time. Temporal, indeed it is, changeable and various, stationary and wandering, never continuing in any one stay. When I leave it, I know it perfectly. When I come back to it, I find nothing or but little of what I left there. I am become a stranger to it and it to me. The court is the same, its members are changed. I shall perhaps be within the bounds of truth if I describe it in the terms which Porphyry uses to define a genus, and call it a number of objects bearing a certain relation to one principle. We courtiers are assuredly a number, and an infinite one, and all striving to please one individual. But today we are one number, tomorrow we shall be a different one, yet the court is not changed. It remains always the same. It is a hundred-handed giant, who if he be all maimed, is yet all the same and still hundred-handed, a hydra of many heads that makes of none effect and despises the labors of Hercules, does not feel the force of that unconquered hero's hand, and, luckier than Antaeus, has for its mother earth, sea, and air. It will not be crushed against the breast of Hercules, the whole world renews its strength. Yet, when the supreme Hercules sees fit, his will be done. If we apply to the court Boethius's true definition of fortune, we find it insofar correct that the court is constant only in inconstancy. To those alone is the court satisfactory who obtain her grace. For she does confer grace, inasmuch as it is not the lovable or those worthy of love whom she affects, but to them that are unworthy to live she showeth her grace. Grace of a truth it is that comes without reason, settles without desert, alights on the ignoble for no known cause. The mystic fan of the Lord separates to itself the wheat from the tares by a true judgment, a righteous winnowing. This of the court, with not less anxious care, parts for itself the tares from the wheat. What the former in its wisdom chooses, the latter in its unwisdom casts away, and vice versa, as so often happens. Covetousness, the lady of the court, urges us on with so many prickings that our mirth gives way to anxiety. He that laughs is laughed at. He that sits in sadness is accounted wise. Nay, our judges set a penalty on joy and a premium on sorrow, whereas properly the good are happy in the consciousness of right and the bad depressed in the consciousness of wrong, so that hypocrites should be always sad and true worshippers of God cheerful. The judge who calls evil good and good evil is consistently enough, according to his own views, mild to the fierce and fierce to the mild. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a source of continual joy to the good, the upswelling of the scaly serpent a source of sadness to the evil. Trailing about the heart of the evil thinker, he gathers a poisonous garlic which pleases in the eating and thereafter does but stink. This garlic is most frequently offered to us here in this court by him who envied us from the beginning. The man who is attracted by his snare is repelled by the Lord's correction. Now, how comes it that we men have degenerated from our original beauty, strength, and force, while other living creatures in no way go astray from the grace first given to them? Adam was created a giant in stature and muscle, and in mind, too, equaled the angels until he was overthrown. 
and though his life was limited by time instead of being eternal, and was cut down from a whole to a fragment, it was yet lightened by the solace of a great longevity. This excellence of morals, strength, powers, and life lasted long among his posterity, but about the time of David, the Lord's prophet, it is described by him as lasting fourscore years, whereas it had been eight hundred or more before the time of labor and sorrow. We, however, now do not last out seventy years without loss of vigor. Nay, as soon as we have attained discretion, we are driven either to death or dotage. The creatures of earth, sea, and air, everything except man, rejoice in the life and powers with which they were created. They, it seems, have not fallen out of their Maker's favor. And what should this mean but that they still keep the obedience enjoined upon them, while we have spurned it from the beginning? Drearily indeed must we lament that while all else has kept it standing, we alone and the devils have fallen, that our deceivers are our companions in sorrow, that our own sin has condemned us to a short span of life and powers, and that because of our following of the first man, we have fallen to be the worst. Who was it that discovered how to melt metals and transmute one into another, that fused the hardest bodies into a fluid, that taught how solid marble could be cut with running lead, who was it who found out that adamant would yield to the blood of a he-goat? Who melted flint into glass? Not we, assuredly. A course of threescore and ten years leaves no room for such discoveries. On the other hand, men who could spend seven or eight hundred years in the acquisition of wisdom and were blessed with health and riches, these could well plumb the abyss of nature and bring deep things to light. It was they who, after the study of the stars, marked out the lives of beasts, birds, and fishes, their tribes and alliances, the natures of plants and seeds. They who assigned a life of a hundred years to the crow, of a thousand to the stag, and to the raven an age which can scarce be credited. Credited, however, they should be by us, particularly in what concerns wild creatures, since these lived with them unaffrighted before flesh-eating prevailed, just as dogs do with us, whose life and habits are open to our observation. Many of their discoveries they have left us in writing, many more have been handed down by the heads of generations from the first, and so our accomplishments are not our own, but have been transfused into us from them according to the measure of our receptivity. Well, the court was the subject with which I started, and see the point at which I have arrived. Such topics are always liable to emerge, perhaps not much to the purpose, yet refusing to be put aside. Nor is it a very serious matter, so long as they do not end in a black fish's tail, and the intrusive subject is one which fitly demands treatment. So, there's the first part of Walter Mapp's satire of courtly existence. If you're confused about what that black fish's tail is doing there in the last sentence, Mapp is making a classical illusion, showing off a bit of his education. That's a reference to the opening lines of Horace's Ars Poetica. Horace begins his verse textbook on poetry writing with this image, quote, if a painter chose to join a human head to the neck of a horse and to spread feathers of many a hue over limbs picked up now here, now there, 
so that what at the top is a lovely woman ends below in a black and ugly fish, could you, my friends, if favored with a private view, refrain from laughing? Believe me, dear Pisos, quite like such pictures would be a book whose idle fancy shall be shaped like a sick man's dreams, so that neither head nor foot can be assigned to a single shape. This is quite a passage from Apt to Invoke here at the start of this very shaggy and chimerical book. Next episode, we'll continue on as Map makes the extended comparison of the court to hell that was promised in the chapter heading. Our riddle went off on winter vacation last episode, but I'm dragging it back, kicking and screaming now. Here's our first riddle of 2018. I am honored among men both near and far, brought from the groves and inhabited hills, from vales and from downs. By day I was born on wings through the air, and happily wafted to the shelter of roofs. Then they bathed me in butts. Now I bind, and I scourge, and I overthrow the young to the ground, and the elders sometimes. And this he soon finds who takes me on and attacks me with violence. He falls on his back, unless he flees from his folly. Robbed of his strength, though strong in speech, he is deprived of his powers and control of his mind, of his feet and his hands. Ask what my name is, who bind men to the ground, the foolish after fighting, in broad daylight. That was a really long one, so I'm not going to repeat it. That's probably redundant in a digital format anyway. Um, but I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the answer and our next chunk of Walter Map. Until then... You can send me thoughts, questions, comments, or whatever else you might have through the usual places. I'd like to acknowledge listener Tim, who pointed out that the sax, the weapon that may have been the root of the tribal name Saxons, was not an axe, as I said, blathering on with a faulty memory, but probably something more like a one-sided dagger. <laughs> Thanks, Tim, for the clarification. If you'd like to add anything, uh, you can reach us on Twitter, at MDTPodcast, and you can get more information and leave comments on episodes at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. And you can email me there at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. I also have a bit of a fun thing I can announce. Uh, if you are the owner of an Amazon Echo, you can now listen to the show via the AnyPod skill. A-N-Y-P-O-D. AnyPod. Just ask your Echo to activate the AnyPod skill and then say... Well, I won't say the A name, since I myself have fallen afoul of podcasters inadvertently, or sometimes trollishly, activating my echo uh, when I'm playing podcasts through speakers. Uh, anyway, uh, you can just say, so-and-so, ask any pod to play Medieval Death Trip, and it will start playing the most recent episode, and it will even remember where you left off in an episode if you want to stop and resume later. Uh, and I think you can also request older episodes by title or number two. Uh, any pod doesn't have all podcasts in its directory. Uh, I had to put a request in to get us listed, but it does have a lot of them, uh, and it's a pretty cool use for your Echo, especially if you're struggling to come up with other things for it to do than just tell you the weather and play music off of Spotify. All right, until next time, best of luck in your own winnowing of the wheat from the tares in your social media or information streams, and thanks for listening. <laughs>